This talk was given by Vanessa Zuise Goddard Sensei. Zuise Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of her talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation to find out more about her teachings or to join her mailing list, please visit her website at vanessazuisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. I would like to speak about, uh, to speak about uh, Viryam. Paramita, <clears throat> and it's uh, translated as energy, or zeal, enthusiasm, um, or diligence, and um, I wanted to talk about it in terms of diligence, in terms of careful and persistent work, or effort, because I've been thinking about it um, in terms of its relationship with discipline. And, you know, discipline, let's face it, is not a very popular word. Uh, And when I looked it up in about half a dozen dictionaries, it just, uh, the definitions I found just um, uh, reinforced its unpalatability. Uh, It was defined as the practice of training people to obey rules or a code of behavior, using punishment to correct disobedience. Spenitential chastisement or as physical punishment, teaching, suffering, martyrdom. And it derives from a Middle English term that describes mortification by scourging oneself. Less uh, punitively, but none the the lighter, it is training that corrects, molds, or perfects the mental faculties or moral character, or a rule of system, a rule or system of rules governing conduct or activity. And so, you know, in any case, the way that we use the term really sets it as the opposite of enjoyment, certainly. And I think as, as far as most people are concerned, discipline is doing what you have to do, even when you don't want to, because, it will, because either it's good for you or because it will take you closer to whatever goal you have set for yourself. But I think there is a a different, perhaps a more open way to think about discipline as the exercise of self-power, as wanting, as choosing to do what you have to do. And so this is an alignment, aligning your actions with a deep desire, which we speak of as aspiration, and a carefully thought out intent instead of out of a sense of responsibility or, or fear of consequences. And so in this sense, you know, being disciplined really means being in harmony with yourself, the totality of yourself and your environment. And I think that given a choice, let's say, you know, if, if you're not living in a totalitarian state or in prison, Given a choice, all of us really do what we ultimately want to do, and little else. And even in a place like this, where so much is decided for us, when we don't want to do something, we we don't. You know, we we fudge, we prevaricate, we delay, or or we do something halfway. But, or or our body sometimes conspires 
You know, we get sick or we get tired, we get dull. <clears throat> and I think the more choices we have, the less likely we are to, to respond to any kind of coercion, especially if it comes from yourself. You know, our, our ego likes to rebel. And I think it's, it's never happier than, than when it's fighting against itself. I think we have all experienced at some point saying, with some determination, I'm going to do X, and finding ourselves doing exactly the opposite. And so we know that forcing ourselves to do something doesn't really work. I mean, it would only get us so far. And at the same time, sometimes we have trouble owning our own power, and so we rely on someone else to make us do something, to create that discipline for us. And sometimes people say quite outright, quite directly, you know, that they, they come, for example, they come to a session because they're having trouble sitting at home. And so they, they're hoping that coming here will, will recharge their, their practice. And usually we say, actually, you want it to be the other way around. You want to be sitting consistently. And this is just a way to, to deepen, but you don't want to rely on the schedule, on the teacher, on the sangha to carry you. And at the same time, this is skillful means. Otherwise, we wouldn't do it. It is helpful to be with a group of people who are all doing the same thing. The bell rings in the morning when we all get up and we come into the zendo. And then when it's time to work, we all work. So obviously, that is, that is skillful. But when that's um, when what motivates you is really externally driven, then it's not at all surprising when we step out into our lives, where we find that that this it's not carrying over into work, into our relationships, and people are often surprised and disappointed, crushed sometimes, especially if they've been here for a while, if they've been here for a year or two that it's not uh, working in the same way in their own lives. And how could it? I mean, it's, like, it's like putting on a coat and hoping that it will warm up your soul. And deep down, I think we all know that it is up to each one of us and no one else. But it can be hard to bear this responsibility. Or, or is it? You know, maybe it's just when we look at it from the outside that seems difficult. Is it, truly, is it truly difficult? Is it a struggle to be the master of your own life, to, to truly own your own choices? As you know, there's that well-known koan of Zuigan calls out master. So, you know, every morning he would call out to himself, master. And he himself would answer, yes, master. Don't be deceived by others, anytime, place." And he would say, no, I won't. I won't be deceived by others. I won't be deceived by myself. So let me 
offer a, a, a slightly different definition of discipline. As a practice of training yourself to identify what is most important to you, that one thing necessary that I spoke of in my last talk, and as the careful and persistent work of choosing those actions that will affirm that one thing instead of deny it, instead of acting at cross-purposes to it. And when what you have to do and what you want to do are aligned, then really most of the work is done. When your wish becomes an imperative, you'll be unstoppable. And so forget about punishment, chastisement, suffering, martyrdom. I mean, they they become irrelevant. And discipline in this sense of kind of towing the line it's such a, I've always thought it's such a narrow, such a limited, such a suffocating definition that it really is a matter of choice, of choosing what you most want. In understanding the mind, Tignahan uses a very simple, really, a very simple um, but very vivid analogy for the mind that I think can, can illustrate how it can discipline as choice can work. He speaks of the mind, mind consciousness as the gardener and as the storehouse uh, of the storehouse consciousness as the garden. And now in, in Buddhism, fundamentally, there are three types of action, wholesome, unwholesome, and neutral that uh, manifest in three ways also, body, speech, and thought. We call it body, mouth, and thought. And we know this, that, that when an unwholesome thought arises in our mind, most likely the result of this thought will also be unwholesome. It's not um, necessary. I mean, in a moment, karma can be transformed, but it is most likely that an unwholesome thought will manifest as unwholesome action. And that is one of the characteristics of, of these seeds of action. They are consistent, just as we wouldn't expect to plant a lemon tree, a lemon seed, and end up with an apple tree. We... we hopefully don't expect to uh, give rise to water a seed that is unwholesome, expecting that the result will be good and affirming. And yet often we do. We do exactly that. And all of the seeds of every single action we've ever experienced, we've ever done, we've ever perceived, are stored in this storehouse consciousness, which is the the eighth, the base consciousness. And so you have the five senses, the sixth, which is mind, the seventh consciousness, which is called manas, or which is roughly equivalent to the ego, and which arises in a kind of fascinating way. You have the storehouse consciousness turns around, basically, and looks at a part of itself and holds on falls in love with itself and creates manas, creates ego. And I was thinking about this 
And I remember, you know, the myth of Narcissus, and I thought it's so, so apt, it's so appropriate. And you, as you probably know, he was the fair, fairest of all the gods, and he was incapable of loving someone else or accepting love or affection. And one of the nymphs that he jilted got angry and uh, cursed him. And Nemesis, who's the goddess of retribution and punishment, took up that curse and said, may the one who cannot love others love only himself. And as the myth goes, he fell in love with his own reflection and basically wasted away pining for what he already had. Then it is, it is perfect to describe that narcissistic personality, but really I think we all have uh, a, a bit of a narcissist in us to the extent to which we are infatuated with ourselves, we can't see someone else, let alone, let alone love them. And so, so the storehouse consciousness, which is vast, contains all of these seeds, latches on to this one piece of itself. And so sowing a seed is, is called um, action as cause. And then the ripening of that seed, the blossoming of that result, is the action as fruit. And so it's a very, in one sense, a very clear, very very vivid um, way to understand cause and effect. And, you know, it's not that simple because intent is also in the mix. But I think we can, we can understand. We can understand that uh, a thought of, anger, how it gives rise, how it ripens into an angry action or an angry word or another angry thought. And sometimes we don't see the effects of that action right away. Sometimes the the seed ripens in an instant. Sometimes it can take lifetimes I, there's, there's been a, I, I can think of a few things in my practice where I have thought I really want to do X. And it's taken me literally 15, 20 years to actually get there. And so in the beginning, I have this intention. And then I struggle and I fight and I procrastinate or I do it a little bit and then I drop it. I like it, you know, I don't really like it. It, it, it feels like it's at the mercy of my how I feel at any given moment. And then one day, when I'm ready, when the circumstances are ready, it just happens. It clicks into place. But it took all of that effort, some of it quite careful and meticulous, some of it not. But now that it's in line with my my deeper aspiration, then it's no longer a struggle. And so I don't really fight the process anymore, and I don't um, get impatient. I know there are certain things that might take a long time. And Thich Nhat Hanh says that that's exactly why we don't need to wonder why it is that we're not yet enlightened. You know, we're doing all this work, and why am I not at peace yet? Why am I not clearer The only thing, he says, that we have to do is we have to very carefully and consistently water those seeds. 
of practice, of kindness, of burgeoning clarity. And in their own time, these seeds will ripen. And in fact, you know, I was saying, you know, that, that when it's the, the time is right, I then I do what I said I was going to do. But actually, it's not even that I do it. I think this is this is why these are paramitas. These are wisdoms, because when it's truly aligned with what is true, with when my intent is aligned with truth, with the way things are, then it's no longer about me. And I think that's exactly what removes the struggle from the picture. I am no longer in my own way. And so within this framework, discipline is very simply choosing the right seeds to water in accord with our aspiration. And then it's just a matter of light and time. And I was wondering if, if discipline is, you know, like talent, you know, that either that, that you have it or you don't, or that some people are born with more of it than others. And I, I, I don't know, I, I, I doubt it. I doubt it. And it feels like we all have limits and we all have strengths and weaknesses. But really, what is a strength and what, e- what is a weakness? Somebody gave me a, a book some time ago about this chess prodigy who got really burned in the world of chess and switched to Tai Chi, um, the combat forms, and he became very good. He became a world champion. And he was saying you know, that it wasn't that he was that good at chess or at Tai Chi. He was just very good at learning. He was very good at identifying his strengths and the things that he needed to work on. He was very good at aligning his intention and his commitment. And so to be most clear about what is uh, important for us, not what we think is important, not what others say should be important for us, but what is really, truly most important for me in this moment in my life. Because we will, once again, we will do what we have to do. Somebody sent me a a link to an article about Michael Phelps who is uh, trying to do a a comeback for the Olympics in Brazil. And, you know, this is probably one of the greatest athletes of all time. He has 22 medals, more than anybody in any sport ever. He has set a number of world records, seven or eight. And the first thing, and and the reason this article was even in print is because he uh, got arrested for a DUI and went to rehab. And one of the first things that he said in the article is, I've never given it my all. And I thought, what a shame. What a shame. And that he didn't have to, that he is so talented that he didn't have to give it his all. And he was wondering what would it be like if he did. 
That's the curse of talent. And luckily, you know, most of us are not like that. We have to work hard. And in that very working hard, we come to life in our lives. We inhabit our lives fully. And the question really, at least for me, is all of this work, all of this discipline, in his case, let's say, for what? What is it for? What is the most important thing? Pema Chodron calls this virtue um, enthusiasm or heroic perseverance. And it's not heroic because it's uh, extraordinary or, or strenuous particularly, but because it is so all-pervading, universal in the sense that it covers the whole universe. And so as I said, it's, it's not about me. It can't be about me. It's metaphysically impossible when it is this kind of perseverance for it to be about me. I came across this poem by Emily uh, Bronte. Actually, it's just a snippet, really, of a poem called No Coward Soul is Mine. And she says, Though earth and moon were gone, and suns and universes ceased to be, and thou were left alone, every existence would exist in thee. And she's speaking of what she calls the ever-present deity. But that's you. That's me. Every existence exists in me. Every possibility, like in a quantum system, that every possibility exists until the moment when it collapses into a single reality, a single observable reality, like Schrodinger's cat. It is both alive and dead, and everything in between, every single possibility is Um, viable, and not only viable, existent. The entire garden is there. Part of it, a good part of it, lying fallow, but waiting to be sown. And it all depends. It all depends on which seeds will water. So you see, it really has nothing to do with an external force. It is really completely all up to me. And so in those moments when, when we struggle, there are, there are times when I feel there's, there's, there's a limit to our ability. We can only do what we're able to do at any given moment. We're only able to see what we can see at any given moment. And that is true. That is real. But I think most of the struggle is, is just, it's a misalignment. We are trying to do perhaps what we don't want to, perhaps what we're not ready for. And often we just, um, we give up. We give up or uh, we get a little tired or we get a little bored. So I'll, I'll work really hard for a couple of periods, but then I'll just get lost in my fantasy. I'll be quiet. I'll really practice the silence in the zendo, but I'll blab away the rest of the day either out loud or in my head. 
And hopefully that won't make me too distracted. Probably don't say this to ourselves, but, but we act. We act that way. And then we, we wonder. And we do wonder. We truly wonder. We ask ourselves, why, why is practice not working? And at the same time, I don't want to make it sound as if you know, discipline is, is never a, a struggle, that you just align yourself with your intent and you're set. Well, actually, if you do really align yourself with your intent, you're set. But it's getting to it, getting to that right alignment, that can be a struggle. You know, I, I consider myself you know, fairly disciplined, and yet, you know, I write regularly. And especially at home, every time I sit down to write, all of a sudden I see all of these things that I haven't taken care of that need to be taken care of at that moment. Every single cobweb I haven't cleaned. You know, every bit of laundry that I need to fold at that moment. I get hungry, I get thirsty, I get tired. I start talking to my partner in the other room who's working and leaving me completely to myself so I can do my work. And now she just says very sweetly, you know, aren't you supposed to be writing? <laughs> and, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's anxiety. And it's a particular kind of anxiety that I don't have with other things. I, I don't have it with zazen. I don't have it with running. You know, other things that I do consistently. But with writing, you know, particular anxiety of putting words on a page. And maybe painters feel it or sculptors. I don't, I don't know. I hope they don't for their sake, but um, it's, a, it's a particular thing that I've always had, and it's quite common. I mean, I, I've, I've heard of a writer who would um, rush into his house from doing the groceries and would just drop the bags on the floor, pick up an envelope, and start scribbling because that wasn't, he wasn't writing, right? He was just scribbling. And that was the way that he could make himself write. The moment he set himself down at his desk, computer, paper in hand, whatever it was, he couldn't do it. So it is a particular kind of, of anxiety, and which seems to manifest as, I don't really want to do what I said I want to do, which isn't really true. So I just, like I said, I, just, I don't buy into it anymore. And yet there is such a thing as confusion, as delusion, as we know. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. Sometimes we just, it's not clear what seeds we should water. Uh, things get, get jumbled in our minds, and so we can't discern. And Hojin Osho, I think she said it last night, you know, we have to get very quiet. Why do you think we do Sushin so often here? Why go to all this trouble to create a space like this to protect the silence and the stillness so fiercely? Because we do. To create the most conducive, the best conditions for us to actually be able to hear ourselves. And that voice, the voice of wisdom, which is our voice is actually always speaking. 
It's just most of the time we can't hear it. I think that even in the most deluded person, it's, it's there. But we hide in noise. And we have made it so much easier, so much easier than ever before, perhaps, to hide. Except, as Bronte said, there's no place apart from me. And so we struggle. We know what we need to do. And so often we can't quite get there. We can't get to the cushion. We can't get to the silence. And also to to acknowledge that because it is a matter of choice, because discipline is a matter of choice and diligence, we are very deliberately, and actually the more deliberately we are, the, the easier it is. I am choosing not to do this so I can do this. That there is a a process, a kind of mourning for the loss of those things that you will not do. You you can't skip that. And, you know, I've tried. I've tried to tell myself that because I love what I do, that I don't really need to be sad for those things that I will not do, for those things that I have lost in order to do what I want to do. And the fact is, is that I love what I do. And sometimes I am sad for those things that I have lost. Those same things, actually, that I let go of so I could do what was most important. And that is true of every choice, every choice that we make, small choices, big choices. There is always something you will not do, you will not get to. It's a, it's a myth. It's an illusion. It's the biggest illusion, probably, that we can have it all. It is simply not true. And either way, as the gardener, I am responsible for every single seed in my garden. And it would be easier if we just all had little individual fenced-in plots. Except it's not like that. It is one vast field. And it can be a field of benefaction, as we chant every morning, or it can be a battleground where injustice and intolerance reign. As as we're seeing right now in in our country, when, when one person says, turns to a group and says, you are not okay, and if they have a big voice and a little power, we believe them. And that is why it's imperative to be clear, to be really clear about what is going on in our minds. Because what I think, how I see myself, is exactly what will be reflected out there. And each and everything I do and think and say affects everything else. Somebody gave me recently a copy of The Little Prince, which I had just uh, read again um, a week or two earlier. And we were talking about it, and we were saying, oh, you know, it's such a sad story. 
And then I was thinking about it, and I, and I thought, maybe not. Maybe it isn't actually so sad. From the outside, it seems sad. And um, so much of it works, applies. And this is, is, is not the whole story, but, you know, he comes from this planet, this other planet, this little prince. And he's speaking to this pilot that he ran into in the desert, and he's saying... He's talking about his little planet, and he's saying it's exactly that. There are seeds. There are good seeds, and there are bad seeds that turn into good and bad plants. And you have to distinguish right away. When it's first coming up, you need to know what kind of plant it is. Because if it's just a radish or a rose bush, then it's fine. You just leave it. You tend it. But if it's a baobab, which takes over the entire planet, then you have to pull it out right away. And so you have to be very careful, very meticulous, he says. And he says, you know, it's a, it's a question of discipline. You finished your own toilet in the morning, and so now you're doing the toilet of your planet with the greatest care. And you must see that you pull up regularly all these bad seeds. And he says, you know, it's very tedious work, but it's very easy. And I think that's, that's the crux for most of us. We think it is tedious work. It looks like very tedious work. Sometimes it feels like tedious work. Over and over, do I really have to pay attention every moment, every time? Yes, we do. Because the, the one little thing that we miss sometimes has consequences that we can't even imagine. And not even in a, in a heavy kind of way, just in a true kind of way. And the little prince is talking about there's a, a new flower that, that um, sprang up in his planet. The, the, the planet is so small that he can just move his chair to watch the sunset every few minutes. And so the flower is most of it. It's most of what's in front of him. And the flower turns out it's a rose, and she's very proud and very uh, self-involved, actually, for a flower. And she thinks, you know, that with her four thorns, she can take on tigers, even. And she becomes very demanding of his time and his attention and his care. And she tar- starts to make up stories. And he knows that they're false. And so at a certain point, he decides, you know, it's too much. I need to get away. And he joins a flock of migrating birds, and he leaves. And the story goes, you know, so he, he meets a, a king and a kind of narcissist and a drunkard and a lamplighter, and he comes to earth and meets the pilot. And he asks him to draw him a sheep with a muscle so that when he goes back to his planet, the sheep won't eat his flower. And on the anniversary of his arrival at Earth, in a sense, he makes the biggest sacrifice in order to return to his flower, in order to return to to take care of that thing which now he sees was his responsibility, and really only his responsibility. And you could say maybe, you know, that all these planets that he sees, all these people that he meets, in a way he's meeting himself and showing us ourselves until he realizes, oh, back there is where I needed to be, taking care of this one thing. 
And from the outside, as he decides to leave, there's a snake involved, a rendezvous with a snake. And from the outside, it looks like death. And he says to the pilot, it's not like that. It's not like that. But it's necessary. And so he lets go. And time passes. And one day the pilot realizes his mistake. He realizes he didn't put the, the uh, he didn't draw the strap on the muscle, which means the little prince can't put it on the sheep. And he says, so now I keep wondering what is happening on the little prince's planet. Perhaps the sheep has eaten the flower. And one time I say to myself, surely not. The little prince shuts his flower under her glass globe every night, and he watches over, her, over his sheep very carefully. And then I am happy. And there is sweetness in the laughter of all the stars. But another time I say to myself, you know, at some moment, one is absent-minded. And that is enough. The one time he forgot to put the glass globe, the one time the sheep got out without making any noise in the night, And he says, and then the little bells are changed to tears. Here, then, is a great mystery. For you and for me, nothing in the universe can be the same if somewhere, and we do not know where, a sheep that we never saw has, yes or no, eaten a rose. A seed has bloomed into a flower. What kind of flower? among all of the seeds. Look up at the sky and ask yourselves, is it yes or no? Has the sheep eaten the flower? And you will see how everything changes. And no grown-up will ever understand that this is a matter of so much importance. I had a quote at the beginning, which I skipped, by Shunryu Suzuki Roshi, and he says, you know, what we are doing here is so important, we had better not take it so seriously. It is so serious that if it becomes too important, right there, we're working at cross-purposes. And yet it is not unimportant, is it? In a, in, a, in a moment of inattention, in a moment where we just don't care, a seed sprouts. And it can stop right there if we notice it, or it can turn into um, one of those invasi- invasive species that takes over the entire garden. And this is not allegory. This is not a story. This is our world. We just have to read the newspaper. We just have to look out and look at what is out there. And so to think of of discipline as um, the the ultimate uh, choice-making, that at every moment of my life, I I have the reins in my hand. And that the reins, in, for better or for worse, are connected to every single one of the reins that you have in your hands. And so if I pull a little bit, you come along. 
And if we can truly understand that, then it is not heavy and it is not difficult. It is just careful and persistent work that we do every day. Because what else would we do? How else would we spend our time? For more talks, to get information about Zuise Sensei's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessazuisegoddard.org.